Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. Uh, my name is Andy Moore, and thanks for joining us this week. Today, as we are recording this, is September 11th, a ominous day in American history, and certainly a day that many of us will never forget. Um, on behalf of the show uh, and of Let's Fix This, our thoughts and prayers are with Everyone in America who was touched by the terrorist attacks on 9-11, I can't believe it's been 19 years since that happened. It's crazy. I was 11 years old when that happened, and I was getting ready for school. My mom got my brother and me dressed, and my mom turned the TV on, and we were watching the live coverage of what was happening, and we watched on live television that second plane at the tower and that's something that will forever stick with me yeah we we were so i was uh god bless you bailey being all of 11 years old on september the 11th uh <laughs> i was uh i was a senior in high school uh and i remember we were so it happened like and we had you know what do you call it uh, the time between classes passing period right is that what you called it to get the bell rings and you go from one class to another so it happened and kind of word like starts percolating through the school and it and it and i don't want to say it was like like it wasn't like chaos but it was you could you know this i don't think whatever happened in in schools now modern schools nigh on 19 years later um but it seemed like everybody just kind of went wherever they wanted to go like i don't remember what my second hour class was but i went to my physics classroom because my physics teacher um, had this like giant at the time, anyway, um, <clears throat> this giant TV screen that he used for like problems and demos and all this kind of stuff. And he had it on CNN. And I mean, it was like, you know, like nobody was trying to teach. Like there was no like, like just any classroom that you went to that had a TV on and, and they were watching. And I was standing in Mr. Mathis's room, uh, uh, Shout out to Steve Mathis if he listens to the show. I'm sure he doesn't. But uh, um, standing in Mr. Mathis's room and um, saw the second plane hit. Um, and it was just like, I don't know. Like, I, I, can't even, I can't even remember what exactly I was feeling. It was just this, um, just like, holy shit. Like, I don't, you know, like this, this feeling of kind of like, what, what and how and why? Um, and then watching, watching the, the towers like fall, like when they collapsed, um, was just, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, since we're sharing, I was in college, uh, I was a sophomore in college, uh, on 9-11 and, and in fact, my roommate from, from that year, um, was I a junior? No, I guess I was a. I guess I was a junior that year. Yeah, I was a junior in college. And my roommate texted me earlier today and said, hey, man, do you remember that morning? He's like, he remembers coming back from class. I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth. And and our neighbor came out and said, you guys turn on the TV because someone else had, you know, they had heard. And this was obviously before Twitter and all of that. Um, and we walked in the room back into our dorm room just in time to see that second plane hit. So it is it is wild to think about all three of us watching to the same footage at the exact same moment at very different points in life, right? Mm -hmm. In elementary school and high school and in college. Um, And I think that's illustrative of the experience that, you know, millions of Americans had. And that's really when, you know, the 24 hour news cycle and cable news was, was coming about. And I mean, I, I watched, you know, I was going into the fall and winter and I was working in roofing at the time. So we weren't doing a lot of roofs. It was, you know, winter time. So I was in the office a whole bunch and we had TV on all day and I watched Fox news, honestly, like, you know, all day, every day for months. And the, you know, the, the rush on gas that day, the, the Scott, the sense of shock and like despair. I think I, after that happened, I, had one class, nothing 
you know, like you said, no one was teaching. We all kind of sat there for a few minutes and then had chapel. Um, and as it was a very solemn walk to the chapel across campus at Southern Nazarene, and we sat there in silence, you know, 2,000 college students, uh, while D. Kelly, the chaplain, just kind of looked out and he said, just pray. Like, and we just sat there silently for an hour and then left. Like, that was, that was it. Like, no one had any words, so. And I wish I could say that was the first act of violence that I witnessed or, like, saw, like, on television in the footage. Um, but growing up in Oklahoma, you remember how the Murrah bombing changed the world. And no one could believe that something like that could happen on American soil. Um, and so I remember at seven years old and eight years old going to visit Oklahoma City and, and putting things on the fence to commemorate and, and pay respects to the lives lost on that day. And so to see that happen in September 11th, um, Just it, it it brought back, you know, those those feelings of, of what Oklahomans witnessed and, and just made me feel feel a little fearful of like what could happen next in the future. And so even within my lifetime, seeing so many other instances of mass violence and things over time. And that was actually the first time that I watched something of that magnitude and of that much despair on live television. Yeah. And so and that was a really pivotal moment that's changed even what we were seeing on TV and the amount of um, trauma that we intake on a daily basis and, and seeing destruction and violence and, and things. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about that too, Bailey, you know, remembering the, the, Murrah bombing um, in 95 and like I, re I remember you know I remember when that happened and like um, we we probably <laughs> looking back we probably shouldn't have done this but I think a lot of people did it you know at, at the day that it happened um, my dad we got in the car and we drove we drove down 235 and you could see it clearly I mean like you know the downtown skyline is still not like it's not New York City right and like you could see the whole thing from from the Broadway extension mm -hmm. and like just the the destruction was something I had never seen before. And, you know, you know, having six years later, right. Um, on September 11th, thinking about a car bomb versus like a giant plane full of jet fuel and like the Murrah building versus the world trade center. And it was just like, yeah, you know, like I, not, un not not unimaginable because you're like sitting here watching it, but thinking like, man, this is this is bad. And like, how does this yeah. how does this how does this happen? Um, yeah, you know, at our Scott, if you remember, at our first West Wing watch party we had a couple of years ago down at the Wheeler District, we had a panel of people who had worked at the White House at mm -hmm. some point. Uh, one of whom was. Uh, State Representative Mike Sanders from Kingfisher, mm -hmm. who was there on 9-11 and, and was over the intern program, I think. Um, and his his memory of that day has stuck with me as well about, you know, when the, the, the planes hit the Twin Towers, of course, and then the one hit the Pentagon. And that changed everything going on in Washington, D.C. And if you've ever been to D.C., um, like... The, the this sounds ridiculous, but like the presence of the federal government is as as intertwined as the air there, right? Like everything you know operates around that, of course. And I, it is it is hard for me to imagine what that would have been like to have been in any government building, particularly an important one, after that first plane hit and the like the rush of everything that would have followed. Um, and much like, you know, yeah. what it was like here in Oklahoma City after that bombing and just trying to come to grips with what was happening. And Andy, it's really interesting that you brought that up because when I was in D.C., um, our 
chief of staff. So I guess my boss working in the office, um, I talked to him about what it was like um, at 9-11 because we had a, it wasn't a fire drill, but something happened to where something was pulled. And so everyone had to rush out of the buildings and no one knew what was going on. And so we talked about that time because he worked in the building around then and they were so afraid, he said. He said that no one knew what was gonna happen. They didn't know whether they were gonna live or die or what was going on with their colleagues that they needed to talk to their families. And so it just made you think about life so differently in the blink of a moment. And so you're right, it has truly changed um, how we interact with TSA and how we fly planes today, it's changed. Like you have to go through layers and layers of security um, in all of the, the buildings in DC. Um, mm -hmm. There used to be a time they said where like in the tunnels, like the public could go through different parts and you know anybody could access different areas. Um, but now, I mean, it's highly secured where you have to have a certain badging and um, wow. there's police everywhere. And that wasn't the case prior to uh, 2001. Yeah, I was actually in DC five years ago today on September 11th touring the White House because that was the only day for my trip, for listeners who don't know, if you plan to go to D.C. and tour the White House, you should contact your members of Congress a few months in advance. I think it's like more than three, but less than six months in advance. You have to give them all your information and everyone in your party so they can do background checks and make sure you're clear. And so that was like the one day that um, Congressman Lankford at the time that his office could could um, make it happen. And so we, I, you know, at the, the White House, you enter on the East Gate and you go through all this security where they're like screening you for, you know, atomic waste and all this stuff like, um, and you go in and you get into the gift shop and it's a tiny little gift shop and we had to wait um, because President Obama at the time was giving a speech about 9-11 in the Rose Garden outside the window, uh, which you cannot see from anywhere. Uh, and so they had the little walls put up and it was really exciting to know that the president was like right there. walking by like on the other side of this wall. Um, but also like the, the secret service <laughs> that were around and that like came down from the roof with their bags full of like sniper rifles and all that stuff was um, it was a sobering thing. And so, you know, there's 20 of us in the tour group or whatever, and we're just standing in the gift shop thinking about oh my god this is 9-11 i'm at the white house like what what if something happens while i'm in dc right now like you know and it was and what would that have been like on that day and it was yeah. just a, a kind of a crazy moment so absolutely well and i know we need to wrap up this conversation but one thing i do want to lift as well is that um not only does my heart go out to the folks in New York who experienced that day and then those whose lives were touched by what happened in New York City and in Washington, D.C. Um, but my heart also goes out to um, our Muslim brothers and sisters who may remember feeling trauma um, after that day. So there were so many people who were uh, profiled and ridiculed and, and fear for their lives um, because Xenophobia was on the rise after this moment happened and it was painted as it was bin Laden, ISIS, and all the Muslims, right? And so um, there were a lot of people who are were born Americans who chose to become citizens of this country who practice the Muslim faith, who experience discrimination. And I think that's something we can't forget in this moment either. I mean, and it's still pervasive, right? I mean, one of the first things the president did when he took office was try to enact a, a Muslim ban, right? And prohibit, prohibit travel from certain majority Muslim countries and um, prohibit entry to the country of, of 
you know, people from certain minority or majority Muslim countries, like that's that, you know, I don't, I don't know that that was new then. Um, certainly 9-11 exacerbated it and I think made it much worse. And I don't think it's ever gone. Effectively, I would, I would know it's never gone away. Um, and so that's, I think, trauma that they still live with every day. Yeah, no, I agree. It, I, I think it's interesting. I've been rewatching some shows on Netflix, specifically The Office, most recently. So I'm on like season seven of The Office. Um, and when you go back and watch shows that were on, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and see what they talk about as like kind of related to what was happening in in the real world, it is it's so bizarre in some ways, right? Like, you know, we've talked before, if you watch the West wing, some of the issues that they are, the policy issues they are dealing with are still policy issues today. Uh, you know, immigration and don't ask, don't tell and, um, student loan debt and all those things. And even on the office, which is very different, there's episodes where they are making jokes about the KGB and like Russia and the, the former Soviet union. There's some of those comments, um, yesterday I saw an episode where Michael Scott is very concerned about China and is like talking about that. And I was like, this is the same conversation that we see played out on television and on Twitter today. Um, that and this is from, I don't even know how many years ago. And it is a law in a long list of discussion topics and lessons that America seems to have not learned yet. Right. Like the 2020 is just, like the year when all the ghosts of America past are revisiting, um, you know, what's happening in our history and, and coming back around this time. So I guess because we're all sitting at home just stewing on stuff, right? Just like when you have too much time to yourself and you start thinking about that conversation that you almost had with someone and what you would have said and going back over it. I don't know. Well, speaking of not learning from the past. Uh, there are still apparently elected leaders who haven't learned that um, they represent everyone and divisiveness is, is not the best approach in a campaign season. Bailey, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> well, what, what could um, you be making reference to? The chatter this week has been about uh, Senator Inhofe's campaign released a commercial that's probably about a minute to a minute and a half long that talks about the soul of Oklahoma. And it brings in images of how some people are attacking police, but Oklahomans are praying for law enforcement and supporting them. And how some people are burning the flags, when others are standing up for those who have fought for that flag and how the people who are not Oklahomans are the liberals and the progressives. And I forgot what other word for to describe uh, people who are not conservative. Socialists. Socialists, liberals, and progressives are not Oklahomans. Not, are not Oklahomans. And so... Um, then it goes into why Jim Inhofe is an Oklahoman. Um, and I know a lot of people um, felt very concerned about that commercial because I know for me, um, I'm fifth generation Oklahoman. Um, my great, great, we talked about this on a, a previous episode. My great, great grandmother came to this state pre-statehood on a wagon train from Texas. My great, great, great grandmother's even buried here, but somehow we're defining who is an Oklahoman by their worldview and belief systems instead of by who literally lives here, um, by who pays taxes, who votes in Oklahoma, right? And so it was very disheartening to see a political ad um, from someone who's supposed to represent all 4 million people who reside in the state of Oklahoma and saying that these are the folks who aren't Oklahomans and these are the people that I don't want to represent and that don't represent 
the values of the state. And and just to be clear, I think I think our listeners know this, but if the reverse was happening, right? If Abby Broyles was running a, a, a commercial from her campaign that said that Oklahomans, you know, like some people are racist and other people care about black people and they like had whatever the the opposite rhetoric is right like and tried to paint other people um paint conservatives conservatives and republicans and whatever they would fascists whatever the other word is that they would use um to kind of run that alternate ad i think we'd have the same conversation right like i don't think i know we'd have the same conversation because that divisive language is 100% 100% like what is wrong with with politics today. And well, but at the end of the day, you don't represent people based on their political beliefs, right? Yeah, and you don't right. get to decide who is or isn't an Oklahoman. Regardless right. of where you fall on any political spectrum, every single person who resides within the borders of the state of Oklahoma is an Oklahoman and we need more politicians who believe in representing all Oklahomans and not creating this divide in deciding it's either them or them. It's what really, makes yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So this is and this is something that is I this is this could be a, a larger discussion, but it's something that I think has been it brews certainly I think on both sides of the aisle. I think right now it's being crystallized on the right um because of who the president is. Um but there's this this like move, right? to thinking that the point of governance is not to like govern, like of being an elected official. The point of being an elected official is to do things for the people who elected you, right? Um, and if people didn't vote for you, then they don't matter, right? Like that's the rep- like that's the rhetoric we hear from the president all the time. And I, I think that that's actually, it's unique to the degree that he says it and it's unique to uh, the degree that it's been amplified, right? I mean, I think... You know, I think, I mean, I, I don't know President Obama. I've never met the man, but I assume based on everything he said that he considered himself president of all Americans, whether they voted for him or not, right? Um, based on the rhetoric of President Bush, I think that he would consider himself president of all Americans, whether they voted for him or not, or agree with him on policy or not. And, you know, I think, um, I, I think Senator Lankford, I get the impression. No, that's, that that's that how, is how he, he is. That's how he how he views it, right? Is that like you may not agree with me, you may not have voted for me, you may have voted for you know the other person, but like I'm your senator, and so if you need something from the government in Washington, part of my job is to try and provide that for you, assuming that it's a reasonable thing that government can can do, right? Absolutely. But this this ad really makes you wonder, like like if you if you if you call uh, Senator Inhofe's office, like do they? To check your voter registration if you need something, right? <laughs> and if it's and if it's blue, that's, I think they, that's a genuine fear right? that people like, have, though. You know, like if it's right? blue, they're just like, "Oh, we're not we're gonna help that guy," like, right. you know. Um, and so it's Which, just it is disappointing. I don't mean to cut you off, Scott. I'm sorry, but yeah. I, you know, I think I've told this story on the on the show before. But I have a a good friend from college who worked for uh, has worked in politics his whole life. His dad is in Congress. It's you know kind of his deal. Um, and he was worked for Senator Marco Rubio when he won his Senate bid in 2008 um, to to go to the Senate. And so we both happened to be in D.C. at the same time and had dinner. And I said, what do you, you know, what was that like on election night? And, you know, this huge deal and what, um, maybe it was 2010, whenever it was, but like what was, what do you do on that night? And he said the the first thing he does as soon as the race is called is he pulls the the candidate or the the person elect for whatever position with you know ag commissioner or u.s senator whatever and says reminds them you now officially represent everybody in that jurisdiction everyone who voted for you and everyone who voted against you you know or didn't or didn't vote like Mm -hmm. um don't forget that um, because he wants that to be the first message that they hear as they're absorbing the fact that they just won this seat um, and that they need to think much more broadly right out of the gate because that's really how it works. Well, uh, and Andy, and so that- like he's been in office for three or four terms. 
And these are six year terms, right? And so how do you serve for three decades and then have a campaign commercial that says, I don't want to represent all Oklahomans? Can we well, get it, can we... the plane upside down? <laughs> right. Some of the bad stuff just falls out of the seat and then you put it on the air. I think that's what So <laughs> setting setting aside momentarily the like way that this represents, you know, horrific governance is and, and is insulting and all those things, which is all true. I I okay, and maybe I'm just, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, so it's probably obvious and I'm just I'm just missing it here, but like you're Senator Inhofe. You're a what, like five term senator or something? Four term senator. I mean, he's been he's been in he's been on Capitol Hill for thirty years, um, and in the Senate for a big chunk of that. So this is not his first rodeo. Um, I haven't seen any recent polling to indicate to me that the Senate contest is particularly close, right? Like I think that Abby Broyles, his challenger, I think she's running a great campaign. I think she's going to do as good, if not a better job than any candidate has done um, against Senator Inhofe in recent memory. And I think she's probably not going to get within 10 points. Um, you know, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just <laughs> my sense of where the, where that, that the shape that that race is in. Um, why, why run this ad? Right? What is there to gain? Right. Like, I mean, this is clearly a, like, this is clearly, I mean, to me, this is a, this is a mobilize your base. Right, like this is a like make sure my base shows up to vote. Ad he doesn't mention that he doesn't he doesn't mention his his uh, opponent at all. Right, he doesn't promote any specific policy ideas. So this isn't targeting like oh this this constituent group I need to reach out to. This is just very generic red meat you know assholery that is like designed to gin up turnout among your base, which we're already looking at an election where turnout is predicted to be sky high. So that's my other, what's why, why like strategically in the campaign, why do you run this app? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that is difficult to know. I mean, I mean, usually in a general election, I apologize. My dog is going nuts outside, but um, generally in a, <laughs> generally in a general election, candidates from both sides are trying to run more towards the middle to you know not abandon their base but to get the biggest possible return of voters and support um and this ad does seem definitively targeted towards his base who one could surmise are not going not in danger of flipping to the democratic candidate right so it doesn't it doesn't necessarily get him anything i don't think it cost him anything well it I mean, might. it's going to piss a lot of people off, but they're probably not people that are going to vote for Inhofe anyway, right? Like, yeah, like you know. So that's the the question is why. I, yeah, like I just why? don't. I don't get yeah. it. Like, I, I actually. So if this is you know, if there were if there were debates coming up, if this was a one or two point race, if there was a cash crunch, if you needed to gin up fundraising, like if there were any of those, any, to Dude. to me the ad makes sense. Maybe in some kind of that context, but like he's got. He's got a ton of cash. He's not in danger. Like, that. What? Why do this? Maybe. Do you think it's to boost turnout among conservatives? I mean, I thought right. of that, but it's Oklahoma. Like, it's like, right. But well, and yeah. and you have President Trump on the ballot for this presidential race, which right. is already going to boost turnout right. among the base. Yes. And so I don't see either what value is added for such a such a divisive uh, commercial. And Scott, you mentioned um, about Senator Lankford. And from working on the Hill, I've seen Senator Lankford. I've seen Congressman Lucas. I've seen Congressman Cole. And I've seen Congresswoman Horn in action. And there's never been a moment where I felt that they were excluding voices of Oklahomans who didn't agree with mm -hmm. them. I've even heard Senator Lankford use language in collective settings of representing all the people of Oklahoma. And they're the type of folks who will have a meeting with you and they'll tell you, here's why I disagree, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at the end of the day, 
that's what's needed from statesmen. That's what's needed from elected leaders. In Congresswoman Horn's office, um, we could not sign up on a bill that didn't have a bipartisan lens to it. That was a value of Congresswoman Horn. And the reason why she was selected as the most bipartisan lawmaker uh, by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, right? Because it's not about, she doesn't care about whether you're Democrat or Republican, whether you voted for or not. She wants to represent Oklahomans. And that's starkly different than what we're seeing from our senior senator in the state. I, the other thing that I think it's important to consider with this ad is the content of the ad, the, not just the copy, like the words, but yeah. the images, right? And yeah. so it's, it is mostly people in their 30s and 40s. It's not, it's not older adults. Mm. It's not younger adults. It's people our age, right? Mm. Who are, so millennials, old millennials like me, younger millennials like y'all, um, and then like younger Gen X people. In fact, uh, Representative Josh West is in there, right? Mm. Um, as it, it doesn't say his name, but we know him and yeah. that's him. <laughs> um, and he's, you know, roughly, he's a few years older than me, I think. And, and so I, if I wonder if, you know, that's, that is the target group, right? Like we know that conservative, like Republican um, women, white Republican women of, you know, 40 years old, plus or minus five or 10 is like the arguably like one of the only swing groups out there of voters and like every candidate of every race wants those voters and it's a group that Trump won in 2016, but is at a strong risk of losing this time. And so if they're trying to reach that group by showing similar people, like these are, look, white women of this age, they support Inhofe and not because he's an Oklahoma and he's not a socialist. And so you should turn out to vote. I don't know. That would make sense if it was going to be a close vote in the state of Oklahoma. But we know there's going to be a significant win for President Trump in this election cycle. And but so, what about like I could see this being a thing that like trickles down to CD five, right? Like sure. it's messaging that Inhofe's <clears throat> got the money. Someone went right. to him and said, "Hey, buddy, can you run this ad like about this, and we'll let you write it." And you know, and but as a way to like influence campaign ballot races. campaign for me without campaign i mean me. but the cd5 yeah. is an area that's light red almost purple and i'm not sure that the commercial fits the appetite or the worldview of the people who live within congressional district five and so i don't know if the commercial would help or hurt him or help or hurt um the, the effort for the CD5 race, especially because it certainly wasn't appealing to black and brown folks, especially if you're gonna have a church choir in there. Um, right. it, it's very problematic. And a lot of people will say that's a huge microaggression no-no that you just don't do in a campaign ad, right? And so when it comes to the values of Congressional District 5, I don't know that the commercial even speaks to it in a way that would generate that type of support to swing it over to the other side. And then what does it say about the right, if that's the value, right? So I'm, I'm yeah, just yeah. very confused. I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm just, I think what we're <laughs> trying, what we're trying idea. <laughs> and, and what I think what, what the three of us are trying to do is we're trying to take a third party look and, and understand the intent behind the ad and also the, what's the potential outcome of the ad or the impact. And those two things may not be aligned, <laughs> right? Like Absolutely. they may have wanted to have one impact and it may have another, for example, another, another, you know, uh, corollary is the, is Mick Cornette's bullstit ad mm -hmm. against, you know, Kevin Stitt when they were running for governor that I know a bunch of, uh, of centrist and, you know, left leaning folks who really liked it because they, 
are mixed supporters and that's their kind of thing and they thought it was witty and funny and it did not pull well uh did not have the impact maybe it pulled well before they did it or maybe they didn't test it i don't know but it didn't it backfired and did not work with older voters that they really needed and so they you know they may have won 10 votes and lost 30 and that's not the way to run a campaign yeah, you know, and it may be, you know, maybe we're we're over thinking it here. Maybe the ad was just, you know, you know, he's got to do something with his campaign cash and make sure that people remember he's on the ballot. And so we'll throw out some red meat for the people that we know are going to show up and make sure they show up. And maybe it's just that straightforward. I just was trying to think, like, strategically, like, is this trying to accomplish anything? And maybe the answer is no. Maybe it's maybe there wasn't any strategy. It was just like, hey, we've got ad, we we're, we need to make an ad buy because there's an election. So we should make an ad buy. So just cut an ad of our greatest hits and put it out there. Well, and that's the other thing is that there is somebody involved in this process. That is the consultant, the ad firm, whatever. Yeah. That, like, who's taking, demonstrate who's their value. 10 to 13% of the ad buys. Right. So, yeah, they're like, we got to do something. Here's a commercial. Like let's air that. And you know, so I mean, that's that, that exists as well. Um, so uh, we talked about the Senate race uh, the other day. News Nine released a poll about the Senate race and about the presidential race and a bunch of other issues, including masks. Right, and uh, Mayor Holt tweeted that about it. He's the first one I saw it from. That this is a statewide poll from Sooner Poll, Bill Shepard over there, and it indicated that like more than seventy percent of Oklahomans would support a mask mandate. Seventy-two percent, in fact. That was shocking to me. That was shocking Relieving. to me as well. But I was like, hey, and, and Mayor Holt um, you know, said he suspects it's even higher in the metro areas, and I suspect he's correct. But still, I mean, for a statewide, for anything in Oklahoma to poll greater than 70% statewide. I have nearly two-thirds of folks, yeah. Here's, so. here's the thing. Here's the thing, guys. Most people, despite what they might say to the contrary, don't want to die. And uh, like, yeah, but this is different between like wearing masks and mask mandate. And the question was specific about masks, like statewide mask mandates. Yeah, but I think um, that I think, and I'm, I this is anecdotal, just because I'm th- this is this is anecdotal from me talking with my patients, right? So like we have we have a mandate um, at my office. Obviously, though, you you know wear masks when you come to the office when when we're in the room with patients and whatnot. Um. And I will tell you that the the amount of pushback that we've gotten on that has gone way down, not up. Um, and the number of times I have to walk in a room now and say, hey, can you put your mask on? Like most patients have them on already when I come in the room. Like they're at least to me endorsing that they're wearing them when they like. I I, I think people are starting to get the message that like this is a bad deal. And that there is, and and I think it's starting to break through that protecting a mat like that wearing a mask is in part about protecting yourself, but is it, it is at least as much about protecting other people. And I think most people, not everyone, but I think most people care about that to some degree, right? Like, and and I and so I think that's I I do I think that that's starting to break through. Well, well I think and, it's and taken I, people to also like get into a routine and a habit, right? Because not to compare people to children, but the first time you bring something <laughs> to a child, are. they're resistant and they're like, I don't like it. I don't want to do it. I, I, this seems different. It's, it's not what I'm used to. I don't want to do it. And then you let them taste that candy and it's like, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. I, I can deal with this. And so I think it's become also more routine and habitual for folks to now just wear the mask and go places and do it to where people are seeing that like, it's not going to be as difficult as I thought to remember to keep a mask in my car and to wear that in public. Hey, I just, I was just in Walmart for an hour and I had my mask on the whole time. And you know what? I don't think my oxygen dropped at all. I think I could, I could, well, I could breathe everything the whole time. So that's the, you know, 72%. I think the part that shocked me was that was high. I expect it to be greater than 50, maybe in the sixties. 
And so I tried to think like driving around town, you know, going into Lowe's or whatever. That's really the only store I've been to, I guess. Um, like what percentage of people would I say are wearing masks? And maybe it is close to 70%. And I would suspect there are others who like aren't doing it because they just don't really want to. But if someone said they had to, they're like, okay, I get it. Like they just, much like children, like, you know, my daughter doesn't want to wear shoes anytime. And I'm like, you got to wear shoes if you're going to go to the park. Why? I think there's there's sticks. I think okay. there's definitely also a component of, I mean, I could, again, I could be, People are sick of, they're sick of everything being so abnormal and they want some sense of normalcy. And in Oklahoma, normalcy in the fall means that football is played on Saturday. And I think that there has been like a lot of drum beating from university presidents, from football coaches, you know, from players like, y'all want to see football games? Then we got to get the COVID numbers down. And that means everybody wearing a mask. And so, I mean, like, I think if you, you know, I it wouldn't. I guess what I'm saying is, if you could phrase the question, if a mask mandate, if a mask mandate meant that there would be a guaranteed college football season, would you be in favor of a mask mandate? And I, and I bet you that 72 percent would go even higher. Well, there was a meme on Facebook <laughs> that was going around that said. Um, you had a choice in March to choose between Applebee's and football and you chose Applebee's. Right. right. (laughs) So I think now that like more time has passed, uh, there's fewer people trying to, I mean, there's always going to be those folks who try to refute the science. Um, But I think the more that folks are seeing like their neighbor and their friend and others around them and different celebrities who are impacted by COVID, it's also shaping people's views of, I guess I can wear this mask and take it a little bit more seriously. So, but hopefully also the polling results will give the governor um, and other leaders the cover that they need to put these mandates in place because this is something that people are comfortable with um, and so if they're comfortable with it, let's go ahead and take that political will to do what's needed to bring those COVID rates down. And as Scott said, get us back closer to some of the things that people love and enjoy. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing I think is interesting is that now we have numbers showing that support statewide is very high for mask mandates. And so... And the governor still won't do one. Well, if yeah, if he doesn't, um, then like, I think it's just a a misstep, right? Like, and so I don't, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I think it's interesting. We will very likely be at, um, will almost certainly be at at least two hundred thousand, uh, if not two hundred and fifty thousand, um deaths in America by election day, right? Um, Oklahoma will be over a thousand uh, alone, which is not great. Um, other news this week, right, is that we are, we have the fourth highest um, positivity not, rate. Positivity rate and then ninth highest case rate out of all the states, which is also, again, two ways. We don't want to be a top 10 state. And so you kind of have all this data flowing in and you know, hopefully the governor is taking this into account into whatever dashboard meeting thing he's got going on. And we even have the right cover call. from the White House, right? I mean, the White House has yes. said these are the different <laughs> mechanisms you need to put in place to ensure that people are protected because you're in that high risk category right now, Oklahoma. And so, I mean, there's just a lot of cover and opportunity for the governor to make that that right decision. Right, so, and you could frame so, it that this, if there's a problem and you want to be a problem solver, here's a clear problem, here's a clear solution. Like, you, again, and I think we said this on the podcast a number of times, maybe going back when we first started, Scott, but I feel like we, when certain politicians in this state are presented with an opportunity to do the right thing, that is, and I will say, regarded as the right thing to do in the eyes of 
the White House, the public, the um, academic community, community, yeah, the, the like public the health community, community. Like, yeah. yeah, like and even the business community, right? Like yeah. a bunch of big box stores mandate masks, and Walmart get, has mandated masks. That's a big deal. Yes, and I get that the governor wants this to be a personal accountability, personal responsibility thing. But if humans have shown us anything, is that we don't always do the right thing unless someone pokes us a little bit, right? Well, and like, well, just do it. Oh, I'm going to posit a theory too. I, I mean, it may be personal accountability and you know responsibility and whatnot. Here's, I think personally, the governor doesn't like wearing a mask. He didn't like it. He didn't like the way it looks. He didn't feel like the way. He didn't like the way it feels. He didn't. Talk, he didn't. He didn't like it. And he's just like, no, I'm not going to make everybody do that. I mean, there's a tweet from him, like from his account yesterday at 1 p.m. yesterday in the Ronald McDonald House. He's in a conference room with four other people, all of whom are wearing masks, and his freaking neck gaiters hanging around his neck like a freaking you know like a like a dicky turtleneck. Okay, like <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like you, you know what I'm talking. You know what I'm talking about? The, the fake turtlenecks yeah. that don't have any sleeves, like what, uh, yes. like what, uh, you know, what Uncle Eddie wears in Christmas vacation. You know, he's yeah. got his freaking neck gator hanging around his neck, sitting next to somebody talking to him inside a conference. Like it's the, it is, it is the picture of what you are not supposed to do. And he does it routinely. Right. So either he doesn't, I mean, I mean, we're, we're coming to a, a reckoning where it's either he doesn't understand why it's so important not to behave that way or he doesn't care like it's one of the two like those are the only possible explanations right like it can't be that he hasn't been presented with the information like that's not possible at this point so either he's being presented with the information about why it's important not to do that or he didn't he doesn't care and maybe he doesn't care because he doesn't like it maybe he doesn't care because he's already had covid so it doesn't matter for him maybe he doesn't care because he's the governor and he and his staff can get tested every freaking day if they want to and have results back in 2 hours maybe like i don't know like i don't know why but like he he apparently doesn't care that one this isn't the way that you're not you're you're supposed to behave number one and number two he doesn't care about the example that that sets to everybody who watches his behavior you know, right, it's and, it, and like, about, and it's and it's infuriating. It is infuriating, and you know, we were talking about the uh, the campaign ad from Inhofe earlier, and now I'm picturing an ad in two years um, for whoever's running against it. Could be There's a montage party, right? of all of his masklessness. Yeah, a bunch of pictures with like the song in the background, like no, 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 and just with every no, it's like a different image of because there's. It's, it seems like, if not for any other reason than for to be forward thinking about, you know, re-election, presume, if, presuming he runs, but that he is squandering some political capital now that he would need then. Well, and speaking of Governor Stitt, he has had a change in his cabinet. So he has a new Secretary of Education. That's right. Yeah. So this guy is a, a former teacher of the year, right, for the state? Well, finalist. Oh, finalist. I thought he actually won. So mm -hmm. just finalist. Okay. Not yeah, that but, it's just a finalist, but. But he's also been, he's also been for the last several years, running um, a local education nonprofit, right? I forget which one. Um, I saw the pick being pretty widely praised, I feel like, on social media. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Seemed like most people felt like it was a, a lot of teachers whose opinions I respect. Um, some state school board members had reached out and said they feel like this was a really good pick. I think uh, Jennifer Money's uh, school board member had specifically had the shout out. So, um, it's yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And he also took, uh, combined the positions, not combined, but he named his Secretary of State also to be secretary of native American affairs. Um, um, yeah, because he hasn't filled that position since. Yeah. Yeah. His previous, his previous Lisa secretary Billy of native. Down. Yeah. She right. stepped down and, uh, and, and after disagreeing with him about his approach to the gaming compacts um, and he hadn't filled that position. So he combined those two. So some, some staff shakeups at 23rd and Lincoln this week. Well, and it's interesting about, Secretary of State Michael Rogers, because he just recently, he had three hats, right? Like he was Secretary of State and then a chief policy negotiator between the governor and the legislature and something else. And he 
resigned from those two other things and said, I'm just going to be Secretary of State. And now, I mean, two weeks later, the governor's like, and also, <laughs> no, here's another not. thing for you. Um, and so I'm curious, with all the other changes going on um, in his cabinet, uh, you know, in mid midterm here, um, this was an interesting move, I think. So I'm curious to see if this is the last that we hear about it. And I'll, I'll just say in passing, because we can't get into it today. I know, Andy, you got to run, uh, but we'll get into it for sure next week. Some interesting polling data in uh, CD5. Uh, who knew that race was going to be competitive? Who could have who seen that coming? Uh, <laughs> that the race between state Senator, state Senator Stephanie Bice and uh, Congresswoman Kendra Horn. So some interesting polling data there. And then uh, the, the, good, the good data data gurus over at 538 have been doing some interesting analysis of congressional races that I think is pertinent to this race, looking at factors that um, are becoming more and less predictive uh, when you're looking at uh, congressional contests um, that uh, that could be could be indicative, potentially, of how the CD5 race goes in November. Dun, dun, dun. All right. We'll How's come that back for to a that. teaser? That's good. Also, there's a debate between those two candidates coming up, which we can preview soon. So that'll be good. All right. Well, on that note, Scott, thanks for being here. Always. Bailey, thank you for being here. Thank you, Andy. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. You've been listening to Let's Pod This, the best pod in this app. I'm making this up on the fly. It's terrible. Um, But be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends, your family. Share it on social media. That would be super cool. Um, Please don't forget to register to vote. Deadline is October 9th. Don't forget to register to vote. Um, Don't forget to request an absentee ballot. If, Regardless of your intent, you should... It's a helpful reminder, and you get a chance to review, let's say all the candidates and the two state questions that will be on the ballot which we will talk about in a future episode as well all right let's pod this as a member of the uh, mostly harmless media network our theme music is called uh, rhino funk by artist so down and it is produced by scott bailey and me so you're welcome thanks for being here have a great week and remember decisions are made by those who show up wow.